Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 in a moment. I had a, I, I had a moment that really caught me off guard at the beginning of November. So about a month ago, we were in Carousel and um, we were um, going down and doing a bit of shopping. And as I do, Mitchell can uh, testify to this, every single time I am in Carousel, I go to the Caffeine Trader because that is amazing coffee. Absolutely. So I do that. Um, go to Caffeine Trader, and, and Caffeine Trader is just outside of David Jones. So we're thinking, okay, let's just go for a walk in David Jones. So we go to David Jones, go up the escalator. This is the beginning of November, and out of the corner of my eye, I see there are some Christmas trees up. And cynical me, cynical me, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like, Christmas trees up, beginning of November, give me a break. Cynical me. We got the kids with us, so guess what? We go over to the Christmas trees. Go up to the Christmas trees and then I start hearing the Christmas carols. And something just, it was just this moment. It was like, oh, it was just so beautiful. It was just so refreshing. And I thought to myself, wow, I really need Christmas. Is anyone else like that? It's been a hard year. It's been a tough year. And regardless of how we went through it, everyone has fatigue and exhaustion. Even if you're kind of like a, a, a full-on introvert and say, you know what, this has been amazing. You know, the roller coaster of emotions, the indecision, coming in and scanning. You know, churches are actually trying to like, and like even our church, kind of say, it's okay, you can still come to church because like people are like scared to scan. And like, it's just like, it's, it's been a different thing and everyone's exhausted. Everyone's exhausted. That's a big reason for New Spring. Every year we kind of give the encouragement, let's slow down instead of pick up the pace. But particularly in this year, it's like, now let's really slow down because the, probably the most godly thing you can do in Advent this year is to rest. It really is to rest. And really, Advent is about resting. Kind of ironic because if you're part of the evangelical charismatic movement as we are, a lot of times when we come into Christmas, we get busier and we speed things up. Yet that word advent, there's a Latin word which means arrival. It signifies the coming of something, that that something is about to arrive. And and this holy season of advent in in our tradition, in our faith, is supposed to be a season of anticipation. It's supposed to be a season of preparation, and it's supposed to be a season of longing. They are three significant words that are so important, particularly in this culture, in this society, in this year 2020 today, because those three words, they actually allow us or give us some kind of response to often the feelings that we have of hopelessness, of lostness that humanity has. And sometimes you're in this position and you're feeling certain things we've been through this year and you can put on a great smile, but you know you're tired. I'm tired. We're all tired. We're all fatigued. And sometimes you say, well, how, what do I do with this? How do I respond to this? Well, Advent allows us an opportunity to anticipate, to prepare, and to long. They are great responses that we can actually lean into as the people of God. I don't know if you're aware, but Advent actually marks the beginning of the Christian calendar. So Happy New Year. Well, that was last week. (laughs) But every single year in our calendar, 
We as followers of Jesus Christ, we are given a season where we are encouraged once again to stop, to pause, to anticipate, to prepare, to long. And we do not do these words very well at all, do we? I am the worst. <laughs> I'm probably the biggest hypocrite Like to actually get up and say, we need to do this. Well, you need to understand when I say we need to do this, I'm looking at myself to say, Dave, you need to do this. And in light of that, today I want to talk about peace. Peace. Peace on earth and mercy, my God, and sinners reconcile. We talk about peace all the time. We sing about peace. We preach about peace. And we often start at the end point. That's what I find. And something I've been really challenged with in just preparing this message, that, that when we talk about peace, we always talk about the end point. We always talk about the experience of peace. You know, treaties are signed around the world in the hope that peace would come. Ambassadors are released to broker peace, and some of us will do almost anything in order to keep the peace. Won't you? And aren't you? How's that working for you, by the way? Right? Keep the peace. Though the Christmas narrative is actually telling us something far more significant, far more deep when it comes to all of this. The Christmas story actually challenges us to choose our peace. And I'm going to show you how it does that. The narrative tells us that there are actually competing visions or competing versions of peace. So every single day, you and I have the opportunity to actually choose which peace, because there are different pieces out there that are actually presented for us. And in order to do that, we're going to look at this familiar um, passage in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 14. Um, the scripture will be up on the screen, but like, I encourage you, if you want, just even listen to it. Because as we've learned in Ephesians, you actually pick up a lot more stuff from hearing as opposed to reading, don't you? Because our Bible was actually constructed and written to be heard, not read. That's the way it was doing it. And even as you read it, you'll hear some things. So from verse 1 says this, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from a village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flock of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified." But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. This is God's word. The Christmas story starts extremely, extremely broad. 
poignantly brought, actually, because it actually starts with the world. The very first verse says, At the time the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed a census should be taken throughout the entire Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, you're talking about the entire world. That's how broad the Christmas story starts. It's starting with the world. Imagine that. It happens... The Christmas story happens at the height of the power of the Roman Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Anyone like a bit of Roman history? You like that kind of stuff? Romans, man, they were insane, weren't they? (laughs) He, at this time, he was using imperial power to find out how much money or how much tax the empire could get. Very interesting to understand and recognize the way that the world uses power because this Roman Empire, talking about the world, is using imperial power to find out how much money they can get. That's how they use their power. I think Luke's already trying to put up a contrast for us, even with that. Augustus is the guy who turned the great Roman Republic into a Roman Empire, and he presided over what we know as the Golden Age of Rome. He proclaimed that he is the one who brought justice, that he is the one who brought peace, ushering a period of Pax Romana or the Roman peace. But this peace which he brought, if you know Romans or if you know anything of the Roman Empire, it was a peace that was accomplished via the sword. It was a peace that was accomplished by you would see streets lined up with crosses with people dying right there in front of everyone for all to see. So everyone was absolutely terrified. That's how they brought about their peace. With the sword, with power, with might, with crosses, with nails, with crucifixion. Conquering. And Jesus was born into this golden age. He's born into the Pax Romana. Where Augustus reigned as emperor proclaiming himself as the prince of peace. And you may be asking, why is this important? Well, it's important for us to understand and recognize that when Jesus is born into this world, the world already had a Prince of Peace. All right? This is what I think is kind of the humor of God. The world already had someone who called himself the Son of God. The world already had someone who said, I am the King of Kings. The world already had someone who went out and proclaimed good news. This is all the language that Luke uses in this narrative. And God is actually trying to point to something. This world already has their Prince of Peace. This is a time when the Roman Empire already celebrated their champion of justice, their champion of peace. He's already there. His name was Augustus, and he was emperor of the world. He was the undisputed king of the world until one holy night. Undisputed king. A 700-year, <laughs> I just find this incredible, a 700-year prophecy was literally birthed right under his nose. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father and prince of peace. This story isn't about peace in and of itself. 
It forces all of us, it forces anyone who is taking the time to actually look at the story. Anyone who hasn't gotten too busy, anyone who hasn't allowed Advent to just slip by, but to actually pause and to actually anticipate and actually sit with it, it is forcing all of us to choose our peace. Who will be your Prince of Peace? Is it going to be the Caesars of this world or is it going to be Jesus? Because even though Caesar Augusta, he's dead, there are still Caesars prancing around and they are offering their peace. Are they? But it's a counterfeit peace. And you know that. It's full on counterfeit peace. See, the story, it begins broad. Luke's actually setting up this tension. And it's the tension that we see throughout the life of Jesus. And it's a tension that you and I are supposed to anticipate and live in as well. Okay? We're supposed to feel this tension. He goes from talking about from the known world, Augustus, emperor of Rome. Then he goes to Quirinius. He's talk, goes from the, he goes from the known world then to, to Syria. Then he goes from Nazareth to Bethlehem. From Bethlehem, he goes to the fields. And from the fields, he goes to the shepherds. He's like bringing it in and in and in. He's like this master film director. And it's this long shot. Then it comes in and it comes in and it comes in and it comes in. And then all of a sudden, you see these shepherds in the field and the angels appear. And then at that moment, poor, um, Luke actually goes even further. And he actually allows us to hear the conversation that's happening on that field. From verse 10, it says that the angel assured him, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. And the anticipation is growing. This is the way that Luke is writing this narrative to build tension, to build anticipation. We've gone from the world, we've gone from the world to a field, and we see this field, now we've gone to a conversation between these shepherds, and when suddenly this angel appeared before them. And the anticipation grows because even though an announcement has been made, the nature of this announcement is still unknown, other than it's going to bring great joy to all people. In verse 11, we're told what this good news is. Verse 11 says, The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the King, in other words, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of God. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will, you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. But this is not the complete announcement. I mean, how could it be? It, it can't be like, oh, there's a baby born, because Luke's already told us in verse 7 that a child was born, that Mary gave birth. The announcement goes beyond this, which is exactly why, if you were listening as I spoke it out, there's actually another suddenly. Did you notice there are two suddenlies in this narrative? Suddenly an angel appeared, and then suddenly something else happens. Like I said, we read this stuff and we miss it because these letters, these gospels, they're actually written to be heard. And as you hear it, you'll pick up, oh, there's another suddenly. What's he trying to tell us? Or verse 13, suddenly, there's that word again, the angel is joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. There's this moment, another suddenly, where heaven cannot wait any longer. The veil between heaven and earth, it is dropped and the angels is actually joined by a vast army of angels who declare and sing praise, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Please, and what an amazing summary. The significance of this birth is for the glory of God and for the peace of this earth. Peace. But what kind of peace? That's the question, right? What kind of peace? The Christmas story straight away presents two different people 
who will administer two different types of peace. Who will be your Prince of Peace? Will it be Augustus, Caesar, or is it going to be Jesus? That is the question that the Christmas narrative puts in front of every single person who is paying enough attention. You have to choose your peace. Choose your peace. So we're going to talk a little bit about peace. In order to do that, I'm going to ask someone who is far more intelligent than me to actually um, explain it to us. His name is Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. Get as much Bible Project and Tim Mackey into as possible. I'll put this video up on our Facebook page this week. So how about you look at that and allow the Bible Project to explain peace so we understand what we're actually talking about before we go on. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work. 
Because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Right? That's why I said, Tim Mackie, you can do something like four men. How smart. These guys are so, so smart. We are so blessed. I think we're too blessed because we have so much good theology, good, like, like it, it actually bamboozles me how people still go to bad, like, like, why would you read that when we've got this? I don't know. Anyway. So what is peace? That's a, that, that is a working definition. It's an understanding of peace. Um, the Hebrew word shalom, the Greek word irene. Peace. One arm professor said peace. The closest English word we have for peace would be the word flourishing. Have you heard that word this year or last year? It's part of the language that we use over and over again in this church, isn't it? About human flourishing, about the flourishing of all things. We use that. And a professor, uh, John Stockham, would say that that is the closest word we have to what shalom actually is. It is flourishing. It's an idea that every individual element in creation flourishes. Whether that be a person, whether that be a tree, whether that be an animal. And it means that every single relationship flourishes. Imagine every single relationship flourishing. That would be amazing. What a vision. What that is would be absolutely incredible. Imagine every group. Imagine every single system. Imagine all the systems of injustice which are currently operating in the world. Could you imagine shalom coming and overtaking every single system? Did you, are you aware that there are systems of injustice in this world? A couple of weeks ago, I said this to Kalamunda, it was a week off. A couple of weeks ago, we had NADOC week in Australia. Do you remember that? That should be a reminder to every single Christian that in Australia there are systems of injustice and we should be doing some things about it. Because we're supposed to be people of shalom. Or you don't want to do the gospel. Do you want to do the gospel? You want to be Christians? Well, we need to be aware that there are actually systems of injustice in this world and we want to be part of thy kingdom come, not part of the principalities and powers who are looking and enslaving and dehumanizing people. I want to partner with kingdom of God. I do not want to partner with the principalities and powers of this world. But shalom actually means this flourishing. It means that every relationship between all of these groups, whether it be individuals, people, families, creation, everything flourishes and it is a global idea. It is an idea that everything is going to flourish, that every single thing that is broken, it is going to come back together again. This is the peace that God talks about. This is the peace that Jesus came to bring. When God created the whole world and things went wrong, when he decided, he says, you know what, I want it back. I'm going to take it back. So he decided through Jesus, he will work out his shalom, his peace in this world right here, right now. And if you can see anything that is broken in this world, if you can actually renew your mind or reimagine that in light of the kingdom of God, you can actually participate and partner with God and bring about his shalom into this world. That's what it means. That's what it means. The angels declare that the birth of Jesus is, that is to be for the glory of God, but also for our peace. And if we're talking about what kind of peace, that's the kind of peace. Okay? That's the kind of peace. Jesus is bringing all the pieces back together because this world is broken, because my heart is broken, because our families and our communities are broken. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says again, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of 
peace. Advent anticipates this shalom, this promise. How many of us can say, I don't think we're there yet? Right? Do we think Australia's there yet? Is your family there yet? Is this church there yet? We're not there yet, so we anticipate it. Advent anticipates the promise of God. And it's a guaranteed promise because Jesus has come, he has died, he was resurrected, and he ascended. You cannot undo the resurrection to this promise. That's a done deal. We're just waiting. We're anticipating. That is what faith is. But Advent also prepares. It prepares the way. It prepares the way so that we can participate with God in the promise. Because we're the people of God. So if you're sitting here and you say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you have already made your choice. You have chosen, my Prince of Peace is Jesus. That is what I would assume. I probably shouldn't assume that, but I'd like to assume that. Would that be right? Jesus is my Prince of Peace. And that means that if Jesus is your Prince of Peace and you belong to his kingdom, we are now people of peace. So now we participate in that peace. But in order to participate in that promise, in that peace, there needs to be a preparation of the way. In other words, there are things that need to get out of the way so I can participate. Okay, now I'm going to start stepping on your toes and my toes. But preparation means clear the way out. Prepare the way. means that there are some things that need to get out of the way. Luke 2 verse 14 says this, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. If we are people of God, I've said this so many times this year, God's covenantal reign is administrated through his covenantal people. So if we are people of peace, how are we going to administer the peace of God? Because even in this way, there are two, two ways you can do it. A follower of Jesus Christ can have in their mind, I'm going to administer shalom in a Caesar way or in a Jesus way. And there are a lot of Christians who go about doing business and they have no idea you're doing this in a way, in a manner like Caesar, you're not doing it in the kingdom way. Does that make sense? We step into that all the time. You go onto Twitter, oh my goodness. Go onto Facebook, oh my goodness. I'm like, I think you guys have just been tricked because you're wanting the right thing, you're going about it the wrong way. Because the way of the kingdom is so different and so much more difficult than the way of this world. The kingdom of Jesus consists of a kingdom of priests. We've talked about this before, haven't we? We've spoken extensively about this. That we are supposed to have a priestly role in the kingdom. What does that mean? It means that we, or a priest, are supposed to represent people or creation before God, and we also present God to people. It's this idea. I've often used this picture that Tom Wright uses, N.T. Wright, of an angled mirror. And it's this idea that all of creation, for the most part, they look in a mirror or they are a mirror and it's kind of straight. 
It's like me waking up in the morning and I can't see myself, obviously. Even now, I can't see me. I can see you. You can see me. I can't see me. The only way I can see myself is if I put a mirror in front of me and then I can see myself. And for the most part, those who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, they are straight mirrors. And they are reflecting something. They are reflecting what is inside of their heart, which is brokenness. And can you imagine a world that has, is full of mirrors, but is brokenness, reflecting brokenness out into the world? Brokenness to brokenness to brokenness to brokenness to brokenness to brokenness. Well, something really significant happens when you or I give my life to Jesus or you give your life to Jesus because our life turns from this to that. It's an angled mirror. So our life in this world doesn't reflect my brokenness to this world. It reflects the glory of God and His goodness and His stewardship and His love and His compassion to this world. And then I'm supposed to, as a mirror, to to actually uh, reflect the praise and glory of creation to God. That's how it's supposed to happen. But how many times do we get tempted we go back to there? But we're supposed to be living like this. This is what it means to actually have this priestly role. Our role, in fact, is to teach creation how to give correct praise. Could you imagine that? What a responsibility, not just to give correct praise to God, but to teach creation to give correct praise to God. How are you doing that with that? How do you live your life in that regard? When you're sitting with someone in a cafe, when you're walking side by side with someone, when you're parenting your, 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 your children, when you're with your spouse, how is it that your life is actually teaching those around you how to give correct and proper praise to God? Because Israel has a huge history, and this is the history of Israel. Over and over and over again, Israel gives inappropriate praise to inappropriate things. And look how it turns out. Well, the New Testament would say that if you are the church of Jesus Christ, you are the new Israel. So we need to be very, very careful that we do not follow the example or the trajectory that Israel has had so often. Does that make sense? Does anyone else get caught in that? Of course you do. I do as well. We do. We're human. And it's such a good thing to actually be reminded of that. Luke 2.14, glory to God in highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This is what happens, okay? When right praise is given to God, this tends to result in an outbreak of peace. When bad praise is lifted, this results in conflict, in hostility, and in war. So really, I mean, like seriously, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, as I am, and we want to be partnering with this promise, we want to prepare the way and actually be part of these peace people, the one way that we will actually administer the peace of God is by giving correct praise to God. You can do all this other stuff, and if you're giving inappropriate praise, guess what? It won't be an outbreak of peace. It'll be an outbreak of hostility, of conflict. Every single time. So what does it mean to prepare in Advent? Advent prepares the way. This is what it means. What is in the way of you and I giving correct, rightful praise to God? What's in the way? Is there anything in the way? The things that get in the way, the Bible calls them idols. 
It's a little bit more difficult today. I've said, I've, I shared this with a lot of people because back in the day, you know, back in the Old Testament, in Israel's scriptures, you, you know, if an idol was present, I mean, you see a little statue in the corner. I was like, ah, oh, there's an idol. It's a little bit more harder in 2020 Western Australia because the idols of today are ideologies. And I can't see that. I can't see a little statue of ideology in the, in the corner. And we obviously, we always go as Christians, we revert to, you know, it's like, it's like the sex, it's the power, it's the glory. Wait a minute. Hey, 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 hey. Let's get a little bit real. Here are the ideologies, the idols of today's world. Personal freedom and rights. How's that going to mess with you? I've got rights. I thought you were dead. Seriously, I thought you died, to, died in Christ. I thought we were supposed to pick up our cross. I, I, like, seriously, and, and you're saying you got rights? I have got no rights. In Christ, we lose everything and we gain everything. You want to find your life? You need to lose your life. But we live in a world that is saying, no, you got rights, you got this, you got this, you got this, you got this. And you need to understand and recognize if those ideologies, if they make their way there, you will not be able to give correct praise to God. Self-autonomy. How would self-autonomy work in a marriage? Let me think about that. <laughs> Seriously. Like we, 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 I was part of like, um, well, I tied the knot. With Dylan and Katie yesterday. It was beautiful. Brilliant. This coming Sunday will be Nay and Yemi. Brilliant. One of the greatest, greatest privileges I have as a pastor is actually to come alongside and actually do, um, do weddings. The, the, the most important things I do as a pastor, I kid you not, the most important things I do is weddings. They're really important, but also journey with people as they're approaching death. They are very important. And I take that very seriously. They are the most important things. But in every single time I'm speaking to young people getting married, or they can be older people getting married, or I give like a bit of a message, marriage is about two people serving each other. Our marriage is not about me preferring me, it's actually me preferring Andrea. Self-autonomy is thrown out the window, and then you add children into that. (laughs) Now your kids, they believe in self-autonomy, but they're young, right? (laughs) Seriously. And they throw a tantrum when they don't get their own way. It's a little bit sadder when you have people who are like 60, 70, 80, 90 or so, and they're like throwing the tantrums that a seven-year-old throws. Self-autonomy is a big one because you and Jesus cannot both be Lord of your life at the same time. You can't. It doesn't work that way. So Advent reminds us to prepare the way. And in preparing the way, it asks the question, what needs to get out of the way? Glory to God in the highest, and there is an outbreak of peace. Our ability to partner with the Spirit and to give proper, accurate, correct praise to God will result in shalom. That is so cool. But we try to get shalom by going and doing things that the Caesars of this world want us to do. We try to make peace in these other ways. 
And you need to understand, if you go by and if you try to administer a peace by the way of these Caesars of the world, you're going to get that kind of peace. And there will be no shalom. No shalom. What a beautiful story. It starts off like this, eh? The last thing that Advent does, Advent longs. It longs. Because we're not there yet, are we? Is everything back together? The promise, Jesus has come. He will come again. I'm trying my best to get things out of the way, but I'm still waiting and I'm longing. And you know why we long? You know why we wait? Because right here, right now, today, we are being reminded that this promise is so important. I think it's about the 1950s, 1960s, evangelicals um, got into this thing where, and maybe it was even before that, but we got into this thing where we, 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 we communicated a gospel and we tried to use a lever of guilt and shame. And we still do that now. It was brilliant for altar calls, by the way. It's not as effective for altar calls today. Do you know why? This generation does not feel guilty. And to be honest, there, there, there is like a motive of, of guilt and shame, absolutely. But to be honest, I actually think even in looking back, I don't think that should have been the lever because it can become manipulation. It, it intrigues me how when it comes to Christianity, so many people talk about Christianity and their first protocol is hell. Well, excuse me, but Genesis starts in Genesis 1. And Genesis 2, when God is talking about a beautiful, good creation, and then the fall comes, and God is returning things back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it intrigues me that so many people, their starting point is hell. And because of that, there is a motive of fear. Wait a minute, for God so loved the world. There are things that we have to unlearn and there are some things that you will see me do and not do and you will tilt your head and you're going to have to just trust me. Dave actually is grappling with things and Dave actually does know what he's doing. If I am to lead someone to a point where Jesus is king of their life, which means that there is another kingdom and our faith is actually allegiance to that kingdom, would it not make sense to actually walk them through what this means? So people run up the front and they give their life to Jesus. They have no idea what they've just done. And then they're left. I've been a youth pastor. I've been a young adult pastor. Now I'm a senior pastor. I've seen literally hundreds and thousands of people run. Now don't get me wrong, some people do. But after they make a decision, someone has to sit with them and actually talk about the implications and complications. Because discipleship, this is what discipleship is, okay? This is discipleship. I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. So being part of this community which we call the church and being a Christian, I am now supposed to embody the values of the king. When I say Jesus is Lord, I'm saying Jesus is king. And the proof of the pudding is I do what the king says. That's what it means. But in order for me to do that, I need people around me who love me, who will shape me, who will actually guide me so that the different things which I'm challenged with and things I stumble with and the complications I have in my life, I can actually bring a more full embodiment of the kingdom of God 
in my life. This, this is what I reckon. I reckon it takes about, how long would it take to make a disciple? I reckon probably about 60 to 70 years. Right? I've been a disciple of Jesus Christ for about 25 to 30 years. And this is all I got to show for it. I'm serious. I look at my life and say, dear Lord Jesus, you're a slow worker because I should be so much. But it takes time, doesn't it? It takes so much time. And why is it that we now have a generation of those who worship and profess Jesus, but they do not know? Is because we have not done the hard work of journeying with people. How did the early church completely overtake the Roman Empire? Well, they were groups of 20 to 30 who were doing life together. They were in each other's worlds. Were they stuffing things up? Absolutely. Because they're people. Has anyone screwed up in the last week? The rest of your line, you have. You have. But isn't it amazing, isn't it beautiful to know that God loves us so much that he comes to us. We are so broken and we're so munted and we're so, uh, but yeah, he loves us so much. And he provides a family, we call the church, to come alongside. And we're supposed to journey towards each other because we are longing for something. We are waiting for something. And if you are longing for something and if you are waiting for something, Advent actually lets us know you better be doing it together. It makes no sense to be a follower of Jesus Christ that I can live my own faith by myself. You have no idea how unscriptural that is. You have no idea. It saddens me. Like the thing that saddens me is like people go, and, and I was like this, you go to church and there's this small percentage of people who get to go to Bible college. And when you go to Bible college, you actually learn the story. And I think to myself, why in the world is there such a small amount of Christians actually knowing the story? So I want to be a pastor, I want to be a teacher of the Word of God where everyone gets to know the story. We keep on banging on about it, know the story, know the story, being grafted into the story. That's why we take three and a half, four months to go through Ephesians. That's why we took a whole year just to go through eight chapters of Mark. We haven't even finished the other stuff because we need to know the story. But, but, but if we believe that this promise of peace, of shalom. If everything that Jesus, if, he, if Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, and if we truly think this is important for this world, we will long and we will wait and we will do it together. We will do it together. I love the journey when we do things together because there are times when I say, uh, you know, like I, I'm, like I, I may like get up here and say I serve as senior pastor, but you need to understand. Like first and foremost, I'm just a a, a guy who loves Jesus, trying to figure this out, right? So there are times when I really want to sit, and I need people to come alongside me and say, "No, Dave, you need to keep standing." There are times when I want to stop, and I need my family around me saying, "No, come on, Dave, we're going to keep on going." Are you like that? There are times when people in this church have fallen and I've said, that's okay, I'm going to pick you up and we're going to keep on going. I've done that so many times in this church. And I hope you have as well. Because that is not a role or responsibility for the senior pastor. That is a role and responsibility of the family. Right? But we're all like that. There are times when, when, when people will cry and I'll bring comfort. 
What is comfort? Comfort is bringing your strength to another person who is weak at that particular time. What do we do with Kalamunda? We started out at the beginning. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. That church was weak, so we added our strength. Right? And as a result, they're still going. How about that? 2020, well done, you spring. You actually, by the grace of God, you enabled a church to survive. Well done. But when I'm weak, you can be strong for me. Isn't that good? Longing deeply for peace, not only in our world, but also in our hearts, in our families, in our region, in our church, is demonstrated as we remain united as family and faithful to Christ, who is our Prince of Peace. Isn't that good? This is what Advent's supposed to be about. It's not a season of trying to get busier. It's a season where we sit, where we contemplate, and we actually think deeply about what does it mean to anticipate the promise of God? What does it mean to prepare the way so that I can participate in this promise of God? And what exactly does it mean for me to long and wait for the fulfillment of the promise of God in this world? And those three things will shape our church, will shape your family, will shape our life and enable us to go through 2020 and make sure that Christmas doesn't just slip us by. Because I don't know about you, this year I feel like I've gone through January, February, March. But we have an opportunity because we're in December and it is Advent. And we will remember our beautiful Jesus and anticipate that he is coming again. Cannot undo the resurrection. And anything that is broken in your life right now, the promise for you as a follower of Jesus Christ is shalom.